We just finished up uh, Living by Faith in Babylon, and then we had a, a reflection on the pandemic. But for this summer, we are going to launch into the book of John, not a verse-by-verse verse, uh, exegesis of the whole book. We're going to focus really on the miracles of Jesus. <clears throat> and uh, I, I, I see that as kind of an intro to Jesus 101, having taught university for 20 years. That's, that's my course title right there. Uh, some of the funniest stories, anybody have the experience, online dating? There are, there are those in this room who are fanatically pro-online dating and those who are fanatically anti-online dating. Frankly, I think it's a great way to kind of sift through the pile without wasting a lot of time. You can find uh, potential uh, partners. Not for me. I've been married 47 years. So. But for you. And uh, actually, regardless of who you talk to, uh, one of the things that often becomes an issue at stake is people are often presented as something that they are not. Amen. Right? And uh, anybody, <laughs> anybody who has done the online dating thing can give you story after story of people who were presented somewhat different than what they really were. And uh, actually, that's not just online dating. I think there's a sense in which that's true of relationships, by and large. It takes a while to get to know people as they really are, right? Who was it said that anytime you meet somebody, you're not really meeting them, you're meeting their representative? And you, you get about 15% of a person as they really are, and then over time, as we learn to trust you and we learn to take our guard down, then you get to know somebody as they really are. John and the other gospel writers uh, introduce Jesus as he really is. We're not seeing Jesus' representative here. We're not seeing a, a, an infomercial from him. Um, and at the start of this study, I would like to encourage us to think this through. We're not really studying a book. We're seeing a person. And we're not even just seeing a, some facts about a person. We're seeing John describe Jesus, who becomes the most important person of his life. And he, it, there's a purpose in it. If you were to look at the end of the book. He, he writes all about Jesus. This is who he, what it was like. This is what he did. But it's not just to inform us, just, not just to make us smarter, not just to know more facts about him. It's this. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you can have life in his name. That's pretty important. It seems to me that that's the big idea behind the book, actually behind all of the gospels. The most significant pursuit in your life and my life is not a career path. It's not where you're going to go to school, not where you will work, not where you will live, not who will you marry. The most important pursuit of your life, if words mean anything in scripture, is to come to grips with who Jesus is personally and to commit my life to him. Not to know facts about him, but to know him personally. And this morning, we want to focus on uh, who is Jesus and what has he done? If you, if you have never come to faith in Jesus, this is, this is going to be a... I want to give you the information that you need to respond to the message of the gospel. But it's not just for you. It's for all of us, uh, maybe who have made confessions of faith and made professions of faith uh, about to Jesus, but are really wrestling with what do I really believe about him? And the reason I say that is because I, I preached two weeks ago on deconstructing our faith, you remember? 
The two guys on the road to Emmaus have built an entire faith structure about Jesus on stuff that was just wrong about him. And when he was crucified, their faith system collapsed. And the guys on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus met with him and walked along for a while, what, what did he do? He drove them back to the scriptures to say, what, what is it that the Bible really be, uh, teaches us about him, as opposed to what, does, what are the cultural messages around Jesus? Watch Christian TV or listen to Christian radio, you'll get a lot of messages about who Jesus is, many of them profoundly wrong. And so I want to... I wanna, I'll give you an illustration of, of an email that I got this week. You know, I taught university for 20 years. And so, uh, can I say again, I want to address not only people who have never come to faith, if that's what, what really is the essence of that. This is an email I got from a former student, not in this church, not even in this state. So don't try and figure out who it is. <laughs> hey, Dr. C., it's been a long while. I wanted to reach out to you because I'm in dire need to talk to a pastor I would reach out to my own, but I don't feel super close to them enough to feel comfortable doing that. Although you're not my pastor, I've always seen you as, as especially that during my years at the university. I'm currently going through a serious time of questioning my faith. I've been suicidal at a few points during the time of deep physical pain. It's been ongoing for the past eight months. I'm currently going to a counselor on a weekly basis. Uh, it's a non-Christian counselor which is why I'm in need of talking to someone to delve into some of my spiritual questions. Would you have time to Zoom? I get those every week. I get those every week. There are a lot of people really wrestling who have been steeped in church, raised in youth group, been in camp ministry, been in church Monday, Wednesday, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday evening, and are wrestling with... And I, and I drive all of us back to see what John says, as old folks used to say, the old, old story. So who is John? Who is he talking to? First of all, John is one of the apostles, James and John, one of those two disciples that were named, you know, sons of thunder. Apparently they had a little bit of an uh, anger issue. I don't know. Um, uh, his audience, why, as he's writing this book, who is his audience and why should they listen to him? Uh, I think it's because John recognized that those folks in his audience were a lot like us. And that is people uh, who were flesh and blood, who got up every morning to the challenges of life, who have health issues, who have family issues, who have toddlers and teens and elderly parents and marriages that are not working out and difficult bosses and financial challenges. He's talking to people who knew there was a God, Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, there's no God. And he's talking to people who are immersed every day in a culture that constantly reminds them of sin. And here's why I say that. It's Judaism. They lived and moved and had their being surrounded, being surrounded by a sacrificial system, right? They knew all the time that the consequences of sin was death. And because they were constantly in the, doing the sacrificial thing, it was a constant reminder. Our culture has sanitized that process of killing animals. You know, you ask a kid, where does hamburger from? The hamburger come from, they'll tell you from the grocery store. But you and I both know that somebody had to slaughter that animal. And in the Jewish culture, that happened before their eyes all the time. 
When we lived in Germany, our apartment looked out the front window into the back door of a butcher shop. Our kids were raised in their early years seeing the butchers every morning bring a cow. They would do it on a patio out back, and they would bring the cow out, plug it in the head, and chop it up right there. Monday was cows, Tuesday sheep, Wednesday pigs, you know. That's why my kids are vegan. <laughs> but there was a constant reminder of them. Uh, so they were, they were surrounded in a, con- in a context in which they were aware of sin and the consequences of it. And... Uh, my guess is they could have gotten used to it, much as we have gotten used to churches being on every corner. They could get used to the sacrificial system, right? Where you just go through the motions and it's kind of like living by the railroad track. You just don't, you're not impressed by it anymore. It doesn't bother you anymore. But that's the context in which he was writing. And frankly, it was also a context of oppression. They were a, they were a, um, let me think. <laughs> uh, they were an oppressed society in occupied, occupied by Rome. And so um, with Roman soldiers and Roman garrisons and Roman taxes, the loss of dignity of a person. If you read Old Testament history, like they knew Old Testament history, they were there because of their national sin, not just their personal sin. And so when John starts talking about good news of Jesus, it's a, it's a message that can resonate with people it's not just information, you know, like a religious program. He's talk, he wants to drive people to the point where they actually see he has something to do with them and their lives. So the most important person in his life uh, had made a difference to him. So let me um, quickly ask, uh, kind of just set up a background of this, if I can get these things to work. First of all, even before we get into the text of John 1, why are there four Gospels? You ever wonder about that? Um, I can remember when I first came to faith like 45 years ago, uh, that was a puzzle to me. Why four Gospels? The easiest answer, I think, is, has to do with uh, watching a baseball game. My, my son-in-law took me to a baseball game two years ago. It was my first professional game ever. Can you imagine? I've seen him on TV, never been in a game. We sat uh, somewhere down the third baseline there. But if you were to ask me to describe the game, it would be different than someone who is sitting far out in the left field versus center field versus right field. If you were to ask everybody around, uh, you know, at the restaurant later on as we're talking to describe the game, we might all, we're talking about the same game, but we're given different perspectives on it. That's something of what you have with four Gospels. The, the authors are writing for particular audiences also. Uh, Matthew, for example, is writing uh, and to a Jewish audience who views, uh, as he's describing Jesus, as the Messiah, as the coming king. That's why you have a genealogy in Matthew. Because to us, who have no frame of reference on thrones and rights to rule and monarchies and all that stuff, do you understand that stuff from England? You know, what's, what's the difference between a prince and an earl and a, you know, whatever? I don't know. To Jews, it's very important to know the background and lineage. Does, does the person you're talking to have the right to rule? And so that's a big deal. That's why he deals with Jesus as King Messiah, deeply concerned about the qualification. 
for Jesus. Mark doesn't have any kind of that emphasis. Mark actually is writing to an, a Roman audience, and to Rome has no interest in, in genealogy. Why? Because he, he's presenting to Romans a population of which about 40% slave describes him as an obedient servant. Now think of the significance of that. We're not concerned about the lineage of a slave. We just want to know, is he obedient? Does he serve? And that's why in King James, you know, you get this straightway language. Straightway he did this. Straightway he did that. Luke writes to a Greek audience. Isn't it interesting that where you get the most healings in the gospel is in the book of Luke? Why? He's a doctor. Luke is a doctor. And so he's writing from his perspective as describing Jesus as a suffering servant. Is he a king? Yes. Is he a Servant, yes. An obedient servant to God, yes. Is he a suffering servant? Yes. And when we come to John, he's writing to a Jewish and Gentile audience what comes across loud and clear. Jesus is the Son of God. Which means what? First of all, I'm always speaking out of my own frame of reference. When I first came to faith, I did not understand the term Son of God because it sounds like Jesus came into existence later after God. Right? Because after all, I have a son. He didn't come into existence until after I came into existence. As a matter of fact, I brought him into existence. And <laughs> you had a part in that too, but um, what's the idea? The idea is son equals same nature. Jesus is the same nature as God. You can see that in the kids. Listen, you can tell almost looking into the kids' uh, uh, groups back there who their parents are, right? Because they look like them, they walk like them, they sound like them, right? Same nature. So, um, and it's in John as he describes this understanding uh, of who Jesus is that you get these seven I am statements. I am such and so. I am... The same, mess, the same phraseology that Moses uses in the Old Testament, right? When God says to Moses, you do, when you go to Pharaoh, you just tell him, I am sent you. Does that sound weird? It's the expression of the eternally present one. He's not I was. He's not I will be. He says, I am the eternally present one. And he gives seven sign miracles. John is very specific in his structure of seven sign miracles. And he is cultivating this theme in chapter 1, look, that's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That is a powerful... Listen, if you and I have gotten used to that kind of language, we're living by the railroad track. Does it mean anything to you that Jesus is the one who takes away my sin? Don't forget this passage right here. These things are written. Why? Not just to make us smarter. It's so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And if you commit yourself to him, he will forgive your sin and give you life eternal. He's not writing to inform. He's writing to convince. Now, uh, I'm going to walk us through a little bit of uh, chapter 1 of John. And it might be a little bit of my university background, but I, I want to I give you pretty much in front of you what my outline is because I want you to see how I'm getting what I'm saying from the Bible, okay? So the first thing in chapter 1 of John is he descri- he's going to describe his divinity, that he is God, and then also that he is a human being. 
a human being who is God. Been living by the railroad track? Does that become second nature to you? He's called here the Word. And if, <laughs> I think John may have a number of things new believers struggle with. I, I remember thinking, why does, it, why, does it, why does John use such strange language? Why, why does Jesus describe as the Word? I think the answer is simple. You use words to communicate. Words communicate, and when God wants to communicate to us, the means of communication is Jesus. And so, frankly, uh, Scripture gives us a number of ways in which God communicates to us. For example, creation, uh, nature, is general revelation. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, Paul says in Romans, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. How? being understood from what has been made. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims its handiwork. Day-to-day pours out speech. There's something that we see and understand about God when we just look at creation, whether it's a telescope or a microscope, right? The incredible complexity, the incredible level of design, the billions of galaxies, you know, and uh, our nondescript little Milky Way, Solar system, our little star is a little bit of nondescript star in the midst of all of that. But the point is, all of that says something about the character of God. Incidentally, purpose and design is a mark of intelligence. You don't get purpose and design by an explosion. You get it by intelligence that creates. The second aspect in which he communicates to us is uh, through special revelation, which is the story of Jesus that John is giving with us here. In the beginning was the Word, the Word, definite article. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days has spoken to us by his Son. We would never know what God is like unless he was revealed to us and the way God communicates to us what he is like. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know how God thinks and acts? Look at Jesus. So the word, notice, notice what the text is saying. Don't, don't take my word for it. The text is saying Jesus is not just a smart, spiritual, or moral guy or a good teacher. Jesus has always existed from eternity past. He didn't come into existence at Bethlehem. And if you want to know whether grammar matters, <laughs> whether words, precise words matter, this is example A where that matters. Uh, note, notice the, the language that's being used, the grammar. Grammar says something specifically. In the beginning was the word. Sounds like Genesis 1, doesn't it? In the beginning, when everything was created, Jesus already was. Amen. And he was with God. Notice, if I'm with you, uh, you know, we're, we're distinct from each other. So Jesus is, has always been in existence. He is distinct from God. And the rest of the text says what? Uh, And the word was God. Jesus is God. He was with God in the beginning. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So can I just say, when we start talking, listen listen to society talk about Jesus, you'll get all kinds of versions. Kind of a nice guy. We're talking about the, the Bible description of Jesus is God himself. From eternity past, 
distinct from God the Father. Actually, that's an argument for the plurality of God. By the time you get to the inclusion of the Holy Spirit, you see the Trinity. But here, at least, is an argument for the plurality of God. And if you say, well, tell us a little more, John. Here's what he says. Um, He created everything. This Jesus that we're talking about, that John says is the most important pursuit in life, is God from eternity past. He is the one that created everything. Uh, All things were created by him. All things were made by him. Without nothing has been made that exists. You you ever go over to the planetarium? Over at the national, no, what is it? the, The museum over here in Colorado. They have a planetarium in there, right? And, uh, I mean, it is fascinating to take a trip through space at the speed of light and see what God has created. That creator is the one who brings light into our darkness. The life was the light of mankind. Would anybody argue with the fact that mankind needs light because we exist in darkness? Um, Watch the news. In our morning Bible study that I do online, Uh, We just read through the book of Judges. You want a depressing book, read the book of Judges. Such carnage, such genocide, such brutality of human beings. I have a friend, uh, it's a sheriff in Ohio, a woman who works the sex crimes unit. Talk to her and you you will never again make the statement, I think people are just basically good at heart. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, add to his divinity his humanity. I'm going somewhere with this, so stick with me. His humanity. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Some theologians have stated it this way. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Jesus never stopped being God, but he became what he had not been before, a human being. A real human being with a body and emotions and a spirit and intellect. At the inca- Christmas time, as we have worked through the Christmas story, that is the incarnation. Jesus was a real baby apart from a sin nature. He wasn't, he didn't, Jesus didn't just inhabit a human body. That's a zombie. He became totally a human being with all of human spirit, emotions, intellect. It's an astonishing mystery, is it not, to think that God could become a human being? That somebody had to feed Jesus? Somebody had to change his diaper? Somebody had to teach him how to walk? You know. did, Jesus ever, did Jesus ever not want to get up in the morning? Unless you want to call that sin, I would say... Maybe Jesus had a hard time getting up in the morning. Do you think he had to learn how to use tools from his father in the carpentry shop? Do you think Jesus ever cut a board too short? Unless you want to say that that's sin, that's part of what it means to be a human being. An astonishing mystery that God became man. And sometimes, I'll just say, uh, I'm watching the clock. People, People say sometimes, Um, when we're talking to people in deep pain, they'll say, you just don't know what I'm going through. But it's the humanity of Jesus that enables us to say, I may not understand, but Jesus understands. 
Jesus understands. Because after all, if he's a human being, he got weary. As a matter of fact, it's in the text. He got weary. Anybody coming out of a pandemic that's been homeschooling kids for the past 18 months that hasn't felt profoundly overwhelmed? Ing and I watch the grandkids for two hours and say, how did we ever raise four? Jesus is exhausted in the back of a boat, and he is so knocked out in the midst of a storm where other guys are fearing for their lives, he's asleep. <laughs> Thirsty? Read the crucifixion story, this raging thirst that comes by dehydration as a result of being thirsty and hungry after 40 days. Deep grief at the death of a friend. That's part of humanity. If you have, if you have ever sobbed and not been able to get a hold of yourself over the death of someone, the, the experience with Lazarus there in Luke 11, the Greek word that's used there is a term for, you ever hear a horse that really, it's, it's a, they call it a snort or something out of it, but this deep grief of expression that Jesus has at the death of a friend. Read C.S. Lewis's uh, A Grief Observed as he writes about the death of his wife. Death of a child. Some in this room have experienced that. Emotional pain to be betrayed, to be feeling absolutely alone, to feel deserted. You're not the only one who has been there. Jesus knows. And I talk to folks now who have been divorced for 25 years and will still sob when that, when that conversation comes around because they feel so betrayed and so alone. Jesus knew what it meant to have friends abandon him and to have nobody there to call on. Physical pain. Chandler's husband, Josh, was saying this morning about, uh, he's, just two weeks ago he had a kidney stone. This morning he has another one. She said, I've never seen any pain like that. Remember the purpose? Remember the purpose? Why is he telling of all this? so that we would be able to understand, to believe in his name, to become children of God. He is the true light. Listen, every cult, every religion claims to have light. The true light is in Jesus, as opposed to what? The darkness of spiritual, spiritual darkness, emotional darkness, depressive darkness, the kind of experiences we go through as human beings where we feel like there is no way out. Why else sometimes do people say, consider suicide because they just want the pain to stop? But those who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, and of course the rest of John will, will line out the whole business of the cross. Why Jesus had to go to the cross where the full fury of God was poured out on him as opposed to me and you. That's why he came. For all who received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then notice, as opposed to all the other ways that people think they get right with God, children born not of natural descent, you're not born into the family of God, not of human decision. I don't just choose to become a follower of God or a husband's will. You don't marry into that. The only way is that is through to be born of God. 
that preempts every other way that people think they can get their way to God. Can I just say, and I'll finish with this, this amazing story of a human being uh, who was God and came in order to rescue us from the disaster that we were in. You get a number of metaphors throughout the book of, of who Jesus really is. He is life as opposed to death. He is, he is a door, a doorway to God as opposed to a wall where you just feel like there's no way forward. He's a shepherd as opposed to, I think the King James is hireling. I don't know what a hireling is. I, I think it's a minimum wage worker. So a minimum wage worker who has no real vested interest in what they're doing. That, that's a hireling, somebody who's watching the sheep, but he doesn't really care about them. Jesus is the shepherd who cares about that. He is the lamb of God. Let me close with this. I taught global mission for about 20 years, global mission and urban ministry. On the global mission course, we spent actually three days where I put together an experience in which they, they, they were refugees. And I had about an army of 35 students who were in camouflage, who had weapons, who had, we fired blanks. I spent seven years in the army, so I got a little bit of experience in this stuff. And the students who went through the class would actually be refugees for three days. We would chase them cross country at night, 12, 15 miles cross country. They would meet up with human smugglers. They would be uh, set upon by rebels. Uh, they would be robbed of what little stuff they had. Um, about four o'clock in the morning on an early Saturday morning, they'd build a refugee camp and they would actually have to kill their own food. I had chickens, you know, they had to kill their own chickens and provide for their families and be attacked by rebels. Well, Saturday night, I would make a point to say, uh, this chicken is not enough protein for your whole family. And I had arranged ahead of time to bring uh, a lamb in. Actually, I didn't, I didn't do it with a spiritual intent. I kind of backed into and discovered by accident. I first of all wanted to do it with a goat, which I had bought, but my girls fell in love with the goat and wouldn't <laughs> let me kill it. And so right before the weekend, I got this sheep and I brought it in. I said, uh, I know most of the students thought I was just going to bring in as an illustration, but they actually had to kill that lamb. So the, I said, here's, here's the deal. Something has to die so you can live. And they were already on emotional overload. They were exhausted, hungry, tired, you know. The most powerful spiritual lesson that I discovered by accident in those classes is the visible impact of seeing that lamb have its throat slit and bleed out in front of them. And the point was, that lamb had to die so you could live. Now that's true not only physically, that's true spiritually. That's the whole purpose of the cross. That's the whole illustration of the cross. So I would say to you this morning, with a topic that is probably very familiar to us, to revisit what does scripture have, like the guys on the road to Emmaus, what does scripture have to say about who Jesus is? He really is God. He really is man. And he really gave his life so that if we would trust and put our belief in him, not just intellectual belief, that I would trust in him, he would change my life and my eternity. That's the message of the gospel. Amen. And I'll close with this. I'll just 
let me say, if, if, you have, if you've never come to grips with what it means to actually put my faith in Jesus, I would invite you to do that right where you are. Personally, God hears you when you express your heart. God, forgive me of my sin. I believe you died for me. I want you at the helm of my life. I want you in the driver's seat of my life. As long as I'm driving, it's a mess. Would you take over the driver's seat in my life? If you've never done that, I invite you to do that. And if you're struggling, I would just say, uh, what was it, the guy in the gospel who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Amen. That's all right. Ask him. He'll help you over that. If you are already a believer and you are secure in your faith, um, uh, actually, this is available for everybody. Out the door, the ushers will give you this. Coming home when you're ready for a personal relationship with God. Uh, it's a good review. If, it's an explanation, really, of what it means to know Jesus. It's got the text. It's got illustrations of uh, the points that are trying to make. You, you will get this, this on your way out the door. This will help you. If you've never made a decision yet and you're not ready, this will help you to get to that point. If you're already a believer, I'm saying, please, take this and give it to somebody else and say, this changed my life. This changed my life. Would you read this and maybe we can talk about it later? I invite you to do that. I invite you to see me. The prayer team will be up here. Uh, let me pray and then we're going to sing and then we'll be finished. But the prayer team will be up here. Please, if, if you have questions or wrestling through this, don't leave this room until you come. Uh, talk to me or the prayer team. Uh, let me pray. God, um, no man comes to the Father except the Father draw him. So, uh, God, I believe that you are, uh, no doubt, working in the lives of folks sitting right here in this auditorium at various points along the continuum. Some who need to come to faith, some who are wrestling with what they actually have done in the past and whether it means anything. I pray, God, that your spirit would be uh, in the driver's seat, that you would help us to take just the next step, whatever that is. I pray that the spirit of God would have free reign, um, that we would do business with you at this very basic truth about life. I pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen.